Warning, the following podcast may discuss topics of violence that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back to Above and Beyond. This is episode 6. So if you've been here since the beginning, I appreciate all the support. And if you're just joining us, where you been? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I hope your week's going well. Um, I know this is a day late, but I have an eye infection that is currently making me want to take my eye out with an ice cream scoop. But they say the show must go on, so here I am. Before we begin, I have a couple of announcements. Um, if you follow us on the Facebook page you'll see that our YouTube channel is now up and running. Uh, I will put a link to that down in the description below. Be sure to subscribe, tell your friends, same thing as with the podcast, blah, 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 blah. Thank you for your all, all your support. Uh, it means a lot to me. And one more thing. Um, if you find yourself in Middle Tennessee later on this month, October 22nd through the 25th, is the Stones River reenactment. As most of you know, I am a reenactor. Shout out to the 59th Tennessee. Um, I will be there along with my company, uh, come out, watch the show, see us a war battle, and yeah. That's all I have for announcements, so we're just going to get to tonight's episode. Uh, this topic was actually sent in by a listener. Um, if you're wondering how to do that, you can email me at above.beyondpodcast at gmail.com, and I will respond to it. If you have emailed me, I would like to throw out that I came down with the case of the Big Dum Dum, and I did not have the notifications turned on for that email. So if you have emailed me recently and I haven't responded to it, just give me some time. I'm trying to work through some of them, and I apologize in advance, and I thank you for your patience. So tonight's episode is about Robert Smalls. Now, Robert was born April 5th, 1839, on a plantation in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, the address of this house is 511 Prince Street. Now, keep that in mind because it does come into play later. Now, being that this was during the antebellum period of American history in the southern United States, Robert was born into slavery. His mother, Lydia Polite, was a servant in their master's house. And now house slaves were different than field slaves. Uh, sometimes they would eat better, they would sleep better, they'd have better clothing. And in more cases than none, they were treated much like the owner's children. Um, Lydia was raised in this environment of being a house servant, so she worried that Robert would not understand the struggle of being a slave if he was raised in this household. And she thought it was going to affect him in the long term and that he wasn't going to think that slavery was as bad as the thing of it was because he didn't have a harsh experience. So she felt that he was favored over other slaves and thought it would make him have the wrong outlook on slavery, as I said. So she asked that he would be put to work in the fields and specifically she asked for him to witness um, some whippings. Now when he was 12, his mother again asked for a favor. She requested that Robert be hired out as a laborer in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, as a teen, Robert loved the sea. I mean, he lived in South Carolina. He was raised around the ocean. He just he, he had a love for the sea and for seafaring life. So when he went to Charleston, he worked a, a, a numerous amount of jobs, from lamplighter to sailmaker to a helmsman and a dock worker. Now, all the time that Char Robert was working in Charleston Harbor, it made him have um, a, a greater love for the sea, and it was something that he really wanted to do if he could get out of you know, being a slave. 
whenever he was not working, he would wander the docks and gather all the knowledge he could about the ships, about sailing, and about the harbor in general, and this made him incredibly knowledgeable about the area. Now, at age 17, he met and married an enslaved hotel maid by the name of Hannah Jones, and the two officially wed on December 24, 1856. Now, Hannah had already had two children prior to her marriage to Robert, but she gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Elizabeth, on February or in February of 1858, and gave birth to a son named Robert Jr. in 1861, but he died about two years, two, three years into his life. Now, since the story is currently in 1861, and because he is a slave, I need to set the grounds for what the story is about. So we're going to talk about the American Civil War a little bit. Leading up to the outbreak of the war in 1861, the United States was experiencing an era of tremendous economic growth. And while the northern, uh, both the northern and the southern United States experienced this growth, there was a clear divide between how each came to grow. The north had a larger population, and they were largely industrialized. Uh, manufacturing was fundamental to the north's economic growth, and they did have some farms, but they were small and they were kind of spread out, kind of just to keep the population, you know, well fed. The South was polar opposite. They didn't have a lot of industry, and they relied heavily on agriculture. And unfortunately, because their population was tremendously smaller than the North, they needed people to work on these farms. And to maintain them, slave plantation owners depended on black enslaved peoples. Now, at this point in American history, slavery had been a normal thing for about 200 or so years. However, in the 1830s and 1840, uh, abolitionist sentiments were becoming more and more predominant in the United States, specifically in the interest of slavery expanding west um, as the country was also expanding west. Uh, it was not necessarily an issue of slavery existing in the United States, but slavery expanding with the country. Oh, but of course, there was always going to be someone against it. Does anybody have a guess who it could be? You with your hand up in the back? You are absolutely right. It is those wealthy southern landowners whose wealth was heavily reliant on slaves. So now looking into the 1850s, this was a horrible time for the United States politically. Like I said, they were experiencing this economic growth, but politically there was a lot of turmoil. Um, I've even read some accounts that technically the Civil War started in 1850s, and I'm, I'm going to get into why. Now in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed. This set the standard that any new western territory could decide for themselves if they wanted slaves or not. This led to both supporters and opposers of slavery attacking each other. Bleeding Kansas is the name given during this time as a lot of people were being killed as anti- and pro-slavery forces clashed. Now the Republican Party is officially created around this time and it is founded on the idea of opposing slavery. Um, another thing that happened during the 1850s was in 1857, there was a court case, one of the most famous court cases in American history called the Dred Scott case. And this was a slave who was taken to a Western Territory, and he sued his owner on the grounds that the Western Territory that they were in, slavery was not legal. But the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that slaves were not citizens and thus could not sue. And this pissed off a lot of abolitionists. Um, in response to this, and not, not necessarily in response to this, but not long after this, in 1859, there was an incredibly famous raid on Harper's Ferry Armory in Virginia by John Brown to free a bunch of slaves. And really all this did was convince more Southerners that the North were hell-bent on destroying their livelihood, which was entirely upheld by keeping people in chains. Now what followed this was 
possibly one of, if not the most important election in American history. This was the election of 1860, which pitted Republican Abraham Lincoln against Democratic candidate uh, Stephen Douglas. Now, like I said, the Republican Party was fairly new. Uh, this was only the second election where they had a nominee on the ticket. And the leading issue for this election was slavery and states' rights. And ultimately, Abraham Lincoln ended up winning. And this terrified and pissed off the entire South. And as a result, seven states, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, I believe were the first seven states to secede from the Union. And in April of 1861, the first shots of the American Civil War were fired by the South on a federal garrison stationed at Fort Sumner in South Carolina. And following this, four more states would secede, and this was, of course, Tennessee, Virginia, North Carolina, and Arkansas, with three border states being, I believe, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware, where they didn't decide either way that they didn't want to secede, but they also had slaves. So it's, it's a mess. That's why they're border states. They were neither technically northern nor southern. Following all these, these 11 states seceding from the Union, the sides were officially set for the American Civil War. So now we're going to talk about how Robert Smalls comes back into play, but before we do that, we're going to pause to take a word from our sponsor. Okay, so now we're in the fall of 1861. The war has been raging for a few months. It's been the first major attack at Fort Sumner. We've also had the first major land engagement in July of 61 at First Manassas in Virginia. Now Robert, because he lived in Charleston, was forced to work on a Confederate ship called the CSS Planter. Uh, its job was to lay mines, deliver troops and supplies, and to scout enemy movements around uh, the Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina coastline. Now, Robert took great note of all the things that he saw, uh, all the troops that moved, what was going where, when it was going, how much it was going, just things that he thought were important and that could help him later on. And one of the major things that he saw was the Union blockade out in the Atlantic Ocean, which was relatively close to the coastline, generally speaking. It was only a few miles out. Um, now, why they were there is because during the war, or early on during the war, there was a general, a Union general named Winfield Scott, who came up with a plan called the Anaconda Plan. Um, the idea was that they were going to suffocate the South. It was going to be a, a naval blockade all along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast of the South. And the ultimate goal was to, like I said, suffocate the South and to stop them from communicating with other nations, to stop them from trading, things like that. Now, while the planter was patrolling the coastline, Robert could see this blockade, and it made him want freedom because he knew how close it was. So he began to hatch a plan to escape. And he showed the plan, or he told the plan to other slaves that were on the ship, with the exception of one guy that he just did not trust, and he thought that they were going to tell the Confederates on the ship. So he kept it from this one guy, but he told the other guys, and they were all kind of on board with it. So on May 12, 1862, the planter's mission was to travel to a Confederate outpost on the Stano River that was being torn down. Their main objective was to secure four large guns that were to be transported to a fort in the Charleston Harbor. Now that night while they were docked, the white officers on board disembarked as they were known to to go out on the town. Now Robert asked if the men's families could come visit them on the ship and the Confederate officers allowed them to with the stipulation that they were gone by the time that they returned. Now during their visit, Robert and the men informed their wives of their escape plan and almost all of the women were heavily against it except for Hannah, Robert's wife, who reportedly said, quote, It is a risk, dear, but you and I and our little ones must be free. I will go, for where you die, I will die, end quote. Okay, so here's how the escape played out. 
Just after midnight on May 13th, Robert put on the captain's uniform and a straw hat to make it look like he was the captain, uh, and then they took the ship towards the Union blockade. The ship successfully sailed past five Confederate forts and were unmolested in terms because uh, Robert knew the codes for all these places. Like the, the forts would signal, and then Robert would give back the correct signal. Um, he never messed up at any of them. But as they approached Fort Sumner, the men became incredibly worried because Fort Sumner was not only the most heavily uh, guarded fort in the area, but it was also the most suspicious. Like, they were known to fire on ships just because they wanted to. Uh, The men pleaded with Robert to revert his course, but he refused, saying that it would be too suspect if they veered off from where they normally did. So what he did was he sailed past normally. He was slowly. They went by. They didn't make any noise. And uh, the fort signaled, flashed the signal, and Robert flashed it back. And then Robert started to get worried because there was an unusually long pause, and he really thought that they were about to get sunk. But the fort cleared them. They let them go through, and the men were the men on the ship were relieved because they, they thought that was going to be the end of it. He sailed out, and by the time anybody realized what exactly had happened, they were already out of range of the guns. Well, the crew changed all the flags to white sheets, and sailed towards the blockade. One of the federal ships that were out there, the USS Onward, thought it to be a bold rebel ship that was trying to either, one, make an escape, or two, create a hole in their line for other ships to come through. So they moved to engage, but upon seeing the white flags, and that the deck was filled with not rebel soldiers, but people who were cheering and shouting and praying out loud, they decided that they weren't going to attack, that they were going to go help them, because obviously they needed it. Um, When the Onward got to Robert, Robert immediately surrendered the ship and all its supplies to the captain, uh, who was, uh, his name was John Frederick Nichols. Now, Nichols forwarded forwarded the story of what Smalls did to his superiors, citing him as, quote, the bravest and most intelligent man I've ever seen in my entire life, end quote. Smalls' knowledge of the harbor and placement of the mines and Confederate forces uh, proved important as he relayed the locations to Federal officers. The intel allowed Union soldiers to capture Coles Island and a string of batteries along the coast with little resistance. Now, see, this is because the Federal forces thought that this area was heavily defended, and they thought that there were thousands and thousands of troops here, but Robert Smalls and his men knew that that wasn't true. They knew that uh, there was actually not a lot of people here, that a lot of them had been pushed to the Western Campaign or that they've just been taken away from the area. So when they told them that, hey, there's not as many people here as you guys think, the federal officers jumped on this opportunity and reclaimed a lot of land that they would hold until well after the end of the war. Uh, Robert Smalls immediately became a hero. Northern newspapers, it was all that they talked about for months and months was the story of what Robert Smalls did. And Congress, even the U.S. Congress even passed a bill allowing for Smalls and his crew to be awarded money for the capture of the CSS planter which today would equal out, I think it was $1,500 back then, so that would equal out to around $40,000 today that Robert got. I couldn't find exactly how much the other crew members got, but Robert got at least $40,000, which is ridiculous. After this, Smalls began to serve in the U.S. Navy. Uh, He was listed as a civilian, but unofficially he was considered a part of the Navy. This was because at this time, uh, black men were not allowed to serve in the Army. Well... That was until uh, Robert and a reverend by the name of Mansfield French were sent to New York in an effort to convince President Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edward, Edwin Stanton to allow black men to fight in the war. Now, if you've ever seen the 1989 movie Glory with Matthew Broderick, 
Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington, you'll see a little bit of what black soldiers went through um, during the American Civil War. They weren't immediately accepted by everybody. Uh, they weren't immediately given combat roles because a lot of the white soldiers thought that they would flee at first combat, which is insanely untrue. In my personal opinion, on any battlefield that Americans have ever fought in, there's not a force that can be reckoned with quite as much as African-American troops that served specifically during the American Civil War. These were men who, for about two years at this point, they were seeing white soldiers die on their behalf. Um, you can say that the, the war was initially started to preserve the Union, which is entirely true, and up until the Emancipation Proclamation took effect on January 1st, 1863, it was to preserve the Union. But once the Emancipation Emancipation Proclamation went through, it was then a fight to create a new nation, a nation free of slavery. These black soldiers, they didn't want to be handed this freedom. They wanted to take up arms with white soldiers and fight for it. And, and that's one of the most respectable things that you could see. This army, like in 1861 when the war broke out, and Abraham Lincoln called up these called up this mass army of volunteers to fight this rebellion. This is one of if if not it's the only one that I can think of off the top of my head. One of the few armies in American history that was built on the idea to free a people, like free a specific people. Like you'll see that soldiers fight for land, they'll fight for money, they'll fight for women, stuff like that. But this army that was formed in 1861 to fight the Confederate army. They were formed to free someone, uh, free an entire race from from chains, and it, it's re it's remarkable, you know. Robert's action with what he did with the CSS Planter is it's not the the main thing, but it's it's one of the big things that pushed Abraham Lincoln to want black soldiers to fight. Like he saw their usefulness, he saw that they were brave and that they were willing to go above and beyond, just the same as white soldiers would. Now, during the rest of the war, Robert would actually pilot six different warships, including the Planter, which he was officially made the captain of in December of 1863 after piling it to safety during a Confederate barrage where the current captain of the ship decided he didn't want to fight and just kind of bailed. Um, in 1864, he was voted as a delegate to the Republican National Convention, and also in 1864, he sailed the Planter into Philadelphia in an effort to gain support and raise money for the education of former slaves. Now, while in Philadelphia, he was forced to give up his seat in a streetcar at one point to a white passenger, and the public outcry that followed this was insane. Like, they said that a war hero should not have to give his seat up uh, to nobody, and it set in motion a bill that would pass in 1867 that would integrate public transport in Pennsylvania, which is pretty cool. Later on in December of 1864, Smalls and the Planters sailed to Savannah, Georgia to aid in Sherman's famous march to the sea where he pretty much just wreaked havoc across the south. Uh, following the end of the war in April of 1865, Smalls was discharged on June 11th but continued to pilot the Planter as a humanitarian vessel in the south to help former slaves adjust to their new lives as free men. Um, also after the war, <laughs> this, is, this is probably my favorite thing about him. At directly after the war, Robert returned to his hometown of Beaufort, South Carolina to buy the house of his former master at 511 Prince Street. You can actually still see this house today. You can go visit it. I don't know if it's like open for tours or anything, but you can still see it. It's, it's a beautiful house. After, after all this, Smalls engaged in a number of businesses, uh, from opening a store to help former slaves 
Uh, he created his own railroad company, and he even published his own newspaper in 1872. Uh, Smalls was also a loyal Republican. At this time in American history, Republicans and Democrats were not the way that they are today. Um, a Republican in 1860, 1860 even is the equivalent to a Democrat today, and a Democrat in 1860 is the same as a Republican today. I know it's weird, it's confusing, whatever. From the late 1860s to the mid-1870s, he served in the South Carolina House of Representatives and was a lieutenant colonel of the South Carolina State Militia. And in 1874, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, where he served until 1879. The entirety of the 1880s, uh, he fought for his seat against one specific Democrat by the name of George Tillman, who, because of gerrymandering laws where districts were split up really weird, the districts that Smalls was originally a part of, uh, they were zoned to where they were predominantly white, so they were starting to vote Smalls out, but then sometimes he would win it again. And it was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between these two. In 1890, he was appointed as the collector of the Board of Beaufort, where he lived, by President, uh, President Benjamin Harris until 1913. I think there was one year where he wasn't... I think Grover Cleveland was the president that uh, made him not for one year, but then he was like, whatever, and then gave it back to him. I couldn't find the full story on what exactly happened. By the late 1890s, his health turned as he suffered from diabetes, and he even turned down a commission of colonel for an all-black regiment during the Spanish-American War in 1898. And on February 23, 1915, Robert Smalls died from a combination of diabetes and malaria. Robert Smalls had an incredible life. He started as somebody physically in chains and worked his way up to not only the House of Representatives, but somebody that presidents, U.S. presidents, were tracking down to try to commission him to lead regiments of soldiers who, 40 years prior, they would have been in chains. It's it's phenomenal what this man did. I believe, like, it always surprised me that there's never been a movie made about this man, but I believe during my research, I remember seeing, I think there's one in the works. Um, I think it was supposed to release sometime last year, but because of COVID, it kind of messed up, so I don't know when it's supposed to release now. But I believe that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, I want to thank you all for sticking around. If you would like to email me suggestions or just let me know how things are going, that's uh, above.beyondpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash aboveandbeyond. And like I said at the top of the show, we now have our YouTube channel up. So uh, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week on Above and Beyond. Above and Beyond.